Well, if you're not in the Christmas spirit after that, shame on you, right? This past semester, uh, we spent 11 weeks, or I spent 11 weeks, walking through uh, the book of Galatians with our high school students. And so, so here's, here's a test for them. You should be able to walk up to any one of our high school students who sat under some very dry teaching for 11 weeks and ask them, who wrote Galatians? Well, why did he write Galatians? And what were some of the main points? And if they don't answer you, if they give you a poor answer, let me know, and we'll walk through it again uh, next semester. But here's what we learned over those 11 weeks. We, we learned a lot was happening in this letter that Paul wrote to the churches. Paul is writing to churches in a region. There is debate over whether it was the northern region or the southern region, but for our purposes this morning, we'll just take this fact that Paul is writing to a group of churches. He's not writing to a specific church. He's writing to a group of churches as he addresses the Galatians. He's learned that all the hard work that he has put into planting the church in Galatia is being undone by some false teachers. Paul doesn't try to hide his, his uh, disdain or his worry for the Galatian church. He says in chapter 1, verse 6, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. We see throughout Galatians that Paul is never amazed at the false teachers. But he's always amazed at the believers, the church. It's very interesting to note that. He says in chapter 3, verse 1, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Who has taken your attention? How in the world have we gone from here to here? And he's getting a little hot about it. And then we see in chapter 4, verse 11, he says, I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. And so what Paul is learning from afar is that the church has made a significant turn. They have, they have turned from what Paul taught and what Paul preached and the foundation that, that Paul laid for the church and they have now turned their attention to some false teachers, some Judaizers who have come in and infiltrated the church. They began to warp the theological foundation that Paul had worked so hard to establish. And the Judaizers taught a combination of God's grace and human effort. God's grace and human effort. See, the Judaizers, this is what makes them so very difficult to, to peg, right? The Judaizers recognized and understood the gospel. They understood the need for Jesus. However, they wanted to take that and add to it Old Testament traditions... Right? Old Testament law, some of the things that, that maybe their, their fathers or the grandfathers or the great-grandfathers had established. They wanted to have both the grace of Jesus and the work of man. And Paul said, it cannot be. He says this, he says in Galatians 1, 7, There are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I think it's important that we take note that anything that distorts the gospel of Jesus Christ must be done away with in our lives. And Paul understood the significance of this, and he wrote to address it. He's calling the churches of Galatia to come back to the original gospel, the only gospel that was needed, and that is faith in Christ alone, that's all. 
He wanted them to come back to their first love and ignore the slick talk of the false teachers, these Judaizers who had begin to, uh, begun to pervert what was the true gospel. He says in Galatians 5, 7, he says this, and I, and I uh, hear it echo as we look at it this morning. You were running so well, he says to the church. You were doing so well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? You were spot on. I worked so hard, right? We established so much. Who in the world is hindering you from obeying the truth? As he works through the first three chapters of, of his letter, our, our book right, that we now call Galatians, he, he reminds them of his own story. And I think it's important to note that because as we talk about zeal this morning or being zealous, Paul was one who was zealous for bad. Paul said, hey, listen, I was a persecutor of Christians, right? I get what it means to be zealous for something and I was zealous for bad. I was a persecutor of Christians. You remember that. You had probably heard about me. My reputation preceded me. And then he reminded them of their story. He says that you were once a lost people. You were once a people that was completely separated from, from Christ, but now you have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And so let's just go back and study history for a second. Not that long ago you understood that, but now something is happening to you. Then we see Paul's pastoral heart, and we'll pick it up here in chapter 4. Paul's pastoral heart here in this chapter. And he seems to calm down, right? He's, he's gone from calling them foolish and wondering who in the world has, has disturbed them and who's distorted the gospel and thinking, man, all that I have done is for naught. He kind of collects his thoughts and begins to point them back in the right direction through chapter 4. Because Paul understood that it wasn't too late for the Galatians to make a turn back to the true gospel. That's what Paul knew. But he did, I think, understand that, or think that there was, there was some urgency here in the message. Matthew Henry writes this concerning the text, concerning up to this text, is that the apostle in this chapter is still carrying on the same general design as in the former. To recover these Christians from the impressions made upon them by Judaizing teachers and to represent their weakness and folly and suffering themselves to be drawn away from the gospel doctrine of justification and to be deprived of their freedom from the bondage of the law of Moses. And what it really boils down to is Paul is getting the church to see that they are signing up for bondage through legalism when they've already experienced freedom through grace. If you want to summarize the first three chapters of Galatians, there it is. Paul is saying to them, he's reminding them, listen, you were once bonded to sin. You were once slaves. And now the gospel has freed you. And now you have the opportunity to live in total freedom in and through Jesus Christ. Why would you turn from this to go back to this? And the answer, I think, is pretty clear this morning. Now then, we pick up in verse 17 of chapter 4. Paul says this. They eagerly seek you, they being the Judaizers. They eagerly seek you, not commendably, but they wish to shut you out so that you will seek them. But it is good always to be eagerly sought in a commendable manner, and not only when I'm present with you. 
My children, here's the pastoral heart, my children with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. But I wish to be present with you now and to change my tone, and I love this, and we'll close with this later on, for I am perplexed by you. And so in verse 17, Paul is comparing the zeal of the false teachers to his zeal for the Galatian church. Another translation puts this text this way. He says, they zealously affect you. They show a mighty respect for you and pretend a great deal of affection to you, but not well. They do it not with any good design. They are not sincere and upright in it, for they would exclude you that you might affect them. Matthew Henry writes this, and you can hear the words of Paul, that which they are chiefly aiming at is to engage your affections to them. And in order to do this, they are doing all they can to draw your affections from me and from the truth so that they may engross you to themselves. Do you see the tension here? As Paul is writing, he's addressing these false teachers who have come in and perverted the gospel And he's giving them a warning. You have to pay attention to what they are saying. And really you have to pay attention to the messenger. He uses this this word, they they engage, there is is zeal. And so I want us to define zeal this morning. It's not really a word that we use often. And so I paused and looked it up this week, right? And zeal can be defined as this, ardently active. Don't use ardently that much either, do we? Ardently active, devoted, or diligent. And so these these false teachers are are diligent in presenting a gospel contrary to what Paul presented. And we would say that they were presenting a wrong gospel. And so the question that we asked this morning is, can you be zealous and wrong at the same time? And I think we all know the answer to that is absolutely because we have all been in an argument with somebody that we knew was completely wrong from the get-go, right? It is, it is one of the most frustrating things that can happen to a human being to be in the midst of an argument where you know you are 100% right and they are 100% wrong. So you can be zealous and wrong at the same time, but it always ends in frustration. Ignorance can play a part in being zealous for the wrong things. We've also, as we've been in an argument with someone that we know is 100% wrong, we've also known those who have argued for something for uh, a season, and then all of a sudden they, they change their tone and they start arguing for something else for another season. And so they were zealous, they were zealous for point A over here, but in their ignorance, they didn't understand what was happening over here, and then they shift gears, right, and put their focus on here. It's, it's, it's ignorance. It's, it's back and forth. It's very, very tiring and frustrating, and so you can be zealous and completely wrong, and I think we all know someone who is like that, right? The false teachers we know in our text were zealous. The New American Standard says they were eager for the Christians in Galatia And they were responding, the Christians were responding to the attention that they got from these false teachers. And before we say, you know, all blame is on the false teachers, which Paul was, right? Or excuse me, um, Paul did not. He puts the blame on the church. 
And here's what I find very interesting, because while a lot of things have changed since Paul wrote this letter, one thing has not, or a lot of things, but specifically here, one thing has not, is that we as human beings desire to be sought, right? We desire to, uh, we, we desire to be um, a part of something, to belong, or to be led well. And we see here, while Paul had worked so hard to, to establish something, he left. And so he is now absent. So guess who is present? The Judaizers, the false teachers are present. They are here while Paul is away. We see in our text that the Judaizers, these false teachers, used flattery to get the Galatians to buy into their theology. There was manipulation, and that's why Paul says that what they were doing was not commendable. They used manipulation to gain followers. And so while the Judaizers were present, Paul was absent, and in his absence, the attention of the Galatian church shifted from he who was gone to they who were here. It was occupied, their attention was occupied by who was currently beside them. And I think somebody could make the point that, yeah, well, the Galatian church, their, their faith must have been shallow. Or maybe they were immature believers. And we could give you that point, right? But, but I, think, I think there's something deeper here. Because I think we tend to pay attention to those who are close by. Right? It's all ha- I think it's happened to all of us. Is that we, we have been wrapped up into something, be it spiritual or non-spiritual. We, we've thought we've made up our mind about something, right? And we, we, we're, we're, we're all in right there. And then in the midst of um, uh, life happening, something else catches our attention. And we're like, yeah, I can have this over here, but this is a great point as well. And that's exactly, I think, what's going on here in the Galatian church. You can imagine the believers in the church saying, sure, Paul had some really good things to say. And he captured our attention for a moment. But now we have these guys, these guys, these slick talkers, right, who understood and recognized the gospel, but yet they, they, they said some of these other things that kind of come along with it. And while they said this, we, we're on board with that, but let's pay attention a little bit to what's going on on the other side. What can be the harm? We know, or hopefully we know, that the Christians in Galatia were being misled. We see that in the text. We see that very clearly in how Paul elaborates in his letter to the Galatian churches, to the church. And it should be easy for us to see that they were being misled. But I don't want us to miss the application here for us. Because it's not always easy to recognize when we are being misled. So let me ask you a couple of questions, and maybe if you're taking notes, you can write these down, because this is, uh, this is not one of the main points, but maybe we can make it a sub-point before we get to the main points. Who are you close to? Who do you pay attention to? Who are you allowing to speak into your life? And have you paused to think about what they're actually saying? Does it line up with God's Word? Or is it just what you want to hear? 
See, what, what the, 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 the false teachers were great at, taking a little bit of this and adding a little bit of that. And really what you end up with is man-made rules seasoned with just enough spiritual truth. Along those lines, I want to I point out to you three quick notes on, on who you should pay attention to and how you should line up with that. I found these the other day. Listen to this. Your attitude must not be determined by his personal appearance or personality. If I'm going to pay attention to someone in my life, I want to make sure that I'm not driven to him or her based on his or her outward appearance or his personality, especially when it comes to things dealing with the faith. You can make your own application there. Secondly, your attitude must not be determined by their own theological whims. My attitude towards this person should not be based on what they think, right? Their own theological whims, going back and forth, back and forth. But, but rather, your attitude should be determined by his or her loyalty to the message found very clearly in God's word. The Judaizers eagerly sought the Christians in the church to pull them away from the truths of God's word. We know their motives were impure. Paul's motives were driven by grace. Their message was Jesus plus the law and tradition. And Paul's message did not change. It was Jesus is enough. Simply put, Jesus is better. And so there's the introduction this morning. Picture, if you will, the, the Galatians over here, and you've got Paul and the Judaizers vying for their attention, trying to position themselves for their attention. Paul is preaching a, a gospel of grace. The Judaizers are preaching a gospel of legalism. Paul is preaching service, while the Judaizers are preaching and teaching manipulation. And in this, the Judaizers are seeking to cut off the Galatian church from Paul. They were caught up in the eagerness of the false teachers. There are a couple things about zeal. Number one, zeal should be on that which is good. Our zeal should be on that which is good. Let's don't be ignorant and zealous at the same time. But rather for us as the church, for us saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, understanding our passions and our drive should be centered on that. Let our attention, our focus, our passion, our drive be focused on that which is good. But not only that which is good, that which brings glory to God. That which makes much of Jesus. Paul reminded the, Judea, uh, excuse me, the, the, the church that their freedom was found in Christ. And they no longer had to be slaves to the law. But rather, they were made new in Jesus Christ. And so let's just pause there and say, I want to be zealous for that. I want to be zealous for those things which are good. Secondly, another point about zeal is that our zeal should remain constant and steady. My passion, my drive, my focus should remain constant and steady, not for a short time or every once in a while. And that's, that was the problem with the Galatians. They were passionate about the gospel for a short time. Paul left, and then it became inconsistent at best. Now, I think that's what Paul was getting at in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. He says, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you, 
implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Be consistent. Be constant in your walk. So we know that you can be zealous for bad. You can be ignorant and zealous at the same time. But what about being zealous for good? What should I be zealous for? There are two things in our text, very quickly. Two, I think two prayers for the church that we get from Paul's example in those three or four verses. And the first one is this. God, give us a zeal for your purpose. Give me a passion to be conformed to the image of Christ. The word to pay attention to is the word formed in verse 19. You can put it this way. Until a mind and life in complete harmony with the mind and life of Christ shall be formed in you. What a fantastic picture, picture of what, what Paul desires for the church is that the church, the believer's mind and life right here would be completely lined up with the mind and life of Christ, that there would be harmony between the two. Going back to consistency, being constant in our passionate pursuit of Jesus. Paul was passionate about using Christ as the mold. And here's why. So that the church would look more like Jesus... And here, in our text, less like these false teachers. But we can go further. The, the, the church would look more like Jesus and less like the culture of which it was a part. And then even Paul would go as far to say, even though he said, hey, look to me, right? Because that's a bold thing. Look to me. Paul, I want you to look more like Jesus than myself. Give me a zeal for your purpose, understanding that I am being molded and formed into the image or the shape of Christ, and that's the goal. And that's why Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. And it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. One commentator says, this is the freedom that Paul is talking about. Christ shaping us, molding us, changing us, and forming us into his image so that we might be liberated to experience life in him, for him, through him, by him, and with him. Knowing what God has done for me and accepting this truth we see in Colossians 3.10 and have, have to put on the self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Understanding that I'm responding to truth. I'm transformed by truth. So God, give me a passion. Give me a zeal for your purpose. And secondly, give me a zeal for your people. Give me a zeal for your church. He says in verse 19, My children with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. And I think this can be twofold. Certainly within our context... Paul is talking about being, being um, passionately um, uh, involved within the church. But for us, as a means of application, I think it can be both within the church and outside of the church. Give me a zeal for people. Give us a passion to see others transformed for the glory of Christ. We have to first understand that I have to have a personal desire for my own growth 
and transformation. I've got to get that right before I can get anything else right. Once I get that right, then God, give me a passion for your church, the desire for corporate, and tra- uh, corporate transformation and growth. Take care of you first. Paul had a great desire for personal transformation and, and growth, and he gives us a pretty um, distinct picture in this, the, the word labor. He says, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. Now, I've never been in labor, right? I've never experienced labor pains, but I've heard stories, right? I've heard it's quite the experience. I hear that it's painful, but one thing I do know about labor is the payoff is great. After watching my wife go through what, what she's gone through with, with her pregnancies and, and labor and all went very, very well. I, I thought, how in the world? Well, first I thought, God, thank you that I'm not a woman, right? Um, but uh, how in the world does she do that? How in the world do you go through that? And I hear, I hear and I don't think there's any scientific explanation, that, that there's something in moms that, that, that they, they forget, <laughs> The nine months of torture and agony and pain, right? They forget all that once, once they, they hold their child, right? Some of you moms are shaking your head. No, I remember it all, right? <laughs> but but I, I, think, I think that the reason is because they understand the payoff is great. It, it's, it's worth it. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here. He says, with the desire comes the distress, the work that I put into you is worth it. He says, my desire is for Christ to be formed in you, and for me, it's worth all the stress of my work. Listen to what David Guzik says. He says, Paul has the labor pains, but Christ is formed in them, in the church. Paul will keep laboring until it is Christmas for the Galatians, and Jesus is formed in them. And I thought, what a fantastic picture for the church. What a fantastic picture for us to have such a passion for people inside and outside of the church. And I prayed this week, God, may it be said of the First Baptist Church of Columbia, South Carolina, that we are marked by our passion and our zeal for the people inside the church and the people outside of the church. That I understand that, that, that the work is worth it. It's worth it to see people transformed into the image of Jesus for the glory of God. Well, we do this through discipleship and prayer. We understand that we have to get better. We understand we have to be sensitive to the leadership of the Holy Spirit. As I close this morning, I want to look very, very quickly at verse 20. Paul says, but I wish to be present with you so that um, uh, I can change my tone, for I am perplexed by you. In that, we see Paul understood the importance of FaceTime. I want to be with you so that you can see what I'm saying and hear what I'm saying. I want you to hear my inflection and see my concern. The, 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 the application there is that it's important for us to see and be with each other. Fellowship is important. Paul understood that. In order to have the relationship, there had to be fellowship. And he says, for I am perplexed by you. And when someone is perplexed, they are usually intrigued. There, there's a mystery to be solved. There's, there's work to be done. One, one um, translation says, I'm, I'm at a loss. In other words, I'm not completely giving up 
on you or with you, but I just can't figure out what I need to do or how to do it. He was perplexed by the church, but he still desired relationship with the church. And I wondered, can it be said of us, as we look inside, as we look around at each other, and as we look outside, that rather than becoming angry with and frustrated by and hostile towards, what if we said, I'm just perplexed? I understand there's a mystery. I understand I've got work to do. I understand that, 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 that there's a difference between wanting to fix something and then having to work to make it right. Paul understood both. He said, I, I want you to understand that, that there is something that needs to be fixed. But I'm not just going to put a band-aid on it. I am going to labor with you and for you until Christ is formed in you. I see a need, and I think I have a solution for it. You've got to pay attention to what's going on. You've got to pay attention to who is speaking to you, and you have to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm perplexed by you, but I'm not going to give up, Paul says. I'm going to keep laboring until Christ is formed in you. May that be said of us as the church, both locally and universally. But here's the one thing as I'm wrapping up, I understand. I cannot be zealous for good until I'm zealous for God. I cannot be zealous for people until I'm first zealous and passionate about God. And I certainly can't be zealous for His church until I'm first zealous for God. Where is your passion this morning? What's your motivation? How are you responding to the leadership of the Holy Spirit and to the people around you? In just a few seconds, I'm going to pray. And, and maybe for the first time, you're thinking, you know what? I, I have no idea what you're talking about, but I understand I am not in a relationship with Jesus Christ. I would love to talk to you about how to get into a growing relationship with Jesus. You can come see me or see one of the pastors that will be standing here in front. Or maybe you say, you know what? I, I understand I need to pray like I've never prayed before, that God would give me a zeal for his purpose and for his people. And maybe today would be a great time to start doing so. Let me invite you to stand. And as, uh, as you stand, I'm going to pray. The choir will sing and you respond. God, thank you so much for the opportunity to be here in this place this morning. We thank you for what you're doing. God, give us, give us uh, wisdom, give us boldness, give us courage to respond. Not for our sake, but for yours and because of what you're doing in our lives. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Thank you, Philip. What a wonderful week to make a priority of praying for those who are in the church and reaching out to those who are not in the church. And so we hope you'll do that. And uh, let me just call your attention. We're going to be, be finished in just a moment. But in your bulletin, it shows a graph there. It shows that our December goal is $780,000 to be uh, in the black. Now, you say, well, that's a lot. We gave more than that last year. We gave over 800000 last year. So let's all do our part and do what we need to do and come out in the black and finish the year. And uh, um, I'll tell you this. We just need to do that, and the pastor doesn't need to have to worry about that here on his last go around here for Christmas time. So you just let's all step up and alleviate that, alleviate that worry. I'll give extra. Let's all do so. So, all right, Dr. Kenzie. When we think about the message of prioritizing, seeking the Lord, you know the word adore, we sing a lot. But do we really adore him? That's what we need to do this Christmas. Let's sing it together. This is our closing prayer. Oh, God.